The text from today's sermon is Hebrews chapter 12, from verses 18 to 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. So if you're able, would you join with me in standing out of reverence for God's word? Hebrews 12:18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. May, bless, may he bless it to our hearing. And you may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we gather before you, not presumptuously, but you have beckoned us to assemble before you in worship through the holy blood of your Son that was offered up for our sake, that we may be forgiven, that we may become your blood-bought children, that we may participate in the glorious heavenly worship of your people. And Lord, as we open your word now, speak to us through your Holy Spirit enliven our minds. Lord, open our eyes that we may see glorious truths in your word. Empower me, Lord, by your spirit that I can lead your people into a deeper understanding by your word and through your, with your spirit's help that we may have our minds lifted up to understand the glorious reality of what it means as we assemble together in the name of Christ and worship him through your grace. Open our eyes, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian writer Leland Riken, in writing a book on work, writes, earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and we play at our work. 
Today, the confusion is deepened. Now, we worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. This is a sad inversion of biblical priorities when our worship becomes something that we play at. It is a far cry from the biblical vision of Christian worship presented to us in the scripture. And so today, I want us to pause and to think about our worship in light of God's word. As I mentioned to the kids, sometimes the things that we do repeatedly can become repetitious. The things that, that are, are routine can become merely routine, and we forget the heavenly realities of what it is that it means as we gather together. So today I want us to consider why do we worship the way that we do and what does it mean as we worship? Does it matter how we worship? And how do we decide on the content and the sequence of our worship? So to answer these questions, let's go to God's word and let's see how it describes the worship of Christians. And this, of course, is addressed in numerous places throughout the New Testament. Perhaps most vividly for us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, that we're going to look at today. And this passage provides a description of the heavenly reality of Christian worship. And it informs us and, and reminds us of the spiritual meaning of our assembly here. What are we doing as we gather in Christian assemblies on the Lord's Day for corporate worship? To understand this passage, it's important to recall the broader context of the book of Hebrews. Essentially, you could say the book of Hebrews is about one overarching theme. And the theme is Jesus is better. The superiority and the supremacy of Christ over against everything that came before. And if we looked through the book of Hebrews, we could see various contrasts between Christ and between something else that came before that foreshadowed Christ. And again and again, the author of Hebrews makes these contrasts to put Christ forward as being better, as being supreme. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, Christ is providing a superior revelation to the prophets. It says, you know, in, the, in various times in past, God spoke to us in, in various ways through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through his son. And in the remainder of chapters 1 and 2, Christ is shown to be superior to the angels. In chapter 3, he is shown to be superior to Moses. In chapter 4, better giving of them a better rest than the rest given by Joshua. In chapter 5 and 6, Jesus is a high priest superior to Aaron and to the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 7, the covenant of Jesus' blood is superior to the old covenant. In chapter 8, he offers a better offering. In chapter 9, his body is a better tabernacle. In chapter 10, his sacrifice, his blood sacrifice, is a better blood sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. Chapter 11, that the hall of faith, you know, you, it seems like it's not where, where is Christ contrasted there? But, but I think we can see that the promised inheritance that Christ gives is better than the earthly inheritance. There's a contrast. 
And then lastly, there's a final contrast in the book of Hebrews, and that comes in today's passage. And really, it is the culmination of all the prior contrasts. They all led to and pointed to and culminated in this final ultimate crescendo of what it means that Jesus is better than what came before. That he, everything that foreshadowed his arrival has been surpassed by the reality of what has been brought in by Christ. So what is this final contrast? Let's look at our passage, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, where the Holy Spirit contrasts two worship events, two events where God's people gather together for worship. The first one represents worship in the Mosaic law by works, apart from the grace of God. And the second event is descriptive of worship that is made possible by Christ in faith apart from works. And so we're going to spend some time looking at these contrasts, hopefully to understand deeply the, the, the spiritual reality of our worship. And then we'll turn our thoughts to thinking about, well, based on these truths, these heavenly realities, how does that help us guide the content and the sequence of our Christian worship? So let's look at verses 18 and 19 of, of Hebrews 12. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We have not come to what may be touched, clearly referring to, to Mount Sinai, an actual physical, tangible location. This is Mount Sinai, and the story here is, is about the event when Israel gathered together to receive the law of God after leaving Egypt. It's, the story is in Exodus 19 and 20. So if you want, you can turn to there, Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, the Lord says that he will appear to the people in a thick cloud. In in verses 10 and 11, then the Moses tells the people to consecrate themselves, wash their clothes, assemble before the foot of the mountain, and the Lord will come down in the sight of the people. Then in verse 12, the Lord commands Moses to put limits around the mountain to prevent the people from coming up. And the Lord says, no hand may touch the mountain. In fact, you can't even touch someone who's touched the mountain. If somebody has touched the mountain, you have to kill them with stoning or shooting with an arrow. You can't touch them. You can't touch the mountain. You can't someone who touched, touch someone who touched the mountain. Then in verse 16, the Lord comes in thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet blast. And all the people assemble before the Lord and they tremble in fear. These trumpet blasts, you know, in the Bible are used to call people into God's presence. Sometimes the trumpet means come, assemble before God and be judged, like the seven trumpets of God's wrath in Revelation 8. Sometimes the trumpet blast means come into the presence of God for deliverance, like the last final trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. Anyways, the trumpet is blowing and it becomes louder and louder and Mount Sinai is wrapped in smoke, verse 18, because the Lord has descended on it in fire and the whole mountain shook. In verse 19, the trumpet continues to get louder and louder and then in verse 20, Yahweh comes to the Mount Sinai and he calls Moses up 
And then in verses 21 to 25, he reminds Moses, do not let the people come near. Do not allow them to come near to the mountain lest they come up to see the Lord and perish. Then chapter 20 comes, verses 1 through 17. Yahweh gives the law, the Ten Commandments, in the hearing of all the people. They hear his word thundering out. And in chapter 20, verse 18, they are so afraid of the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet and the smoking mountain that they tremble and they stand far off in awe of God's glory. And they beg Moses that God may not speak to them anymore lest they die. Their encounter with the presence of the Lord instills fear into their hearts. It reminds them and it testifies clearly to them of God's great holiness and awesome power and otherness, that they are not like God and God is not like them. And even the small glimpse of his glory and power and holiness fills them with dread. And that's what this worship event shows. Primarily, it shows that God is holy and man is sinful. God is other, separated from sin. And sinful man is estranged from God. And the, the, the law that gets inaugurated here doesn't provide a way for man to approach the holy God. God is too fearsome, too holy, too exalted to approach. His people were laid bare by his holiness. They could not endure the condemnation that uh, came against them because of their sin. And there was no way for them to come out of it because there was no justification provided by the works of the law. And thus there was no acceptable worship. And verse, verse 20 continues, they, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so even, the, even this worship event, it's, it's, it's kind of weird in terms of a worship event because more or less it's just a fear event. The people come and they assemble before the presence of Yahweh and the law is read to them, which is good to point them to their need for grace, but, but it not actually providing a way to come near to him in worship. So even Moses was terrified. In verse 21, he says, in, indeed, so terrifying <clears throat> was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. This is Moses, right? Like, he's not a spiritual rookie. He had encountered the holiness of God in the burning bush. He had stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh. He, he had been used to deliver all the plagues and pestilence on Egypt and, and even to deliver the people from, from Egypt through the Red Sea. But even Moses could hardly endure the awesome presence of the Lord, and he trembled. So then the author of Hebrews here is, is painting this picture. He's showing what that worship event was like in Mount Sinai. And he's saying that is not what we have come to. We have not come to thunder and lightning and smoke and trumpets and trembling and fear. We have not come to a manifestation of God's holiness that is so awesome and powerful and overwhelming that we die. But we have come to something totally different when we worship. And, and he goes on to talk about the ways that is different. So let's look at verse 22. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to immeasurable angels in festal gathering. In contrast to Mount Sinai, the Holy Spirit is saying, when we gather in worship as Christians, 
We have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion. It was the mountain in Jerusalem where David had brought the Ark of the Covenant. It was where the people of Israel gathered for their national worship. It was where they, they could bring a goat or a lamb and they could offer it on the altar that God had prepared and find forgiveness and find atonement. Of course, looking ahead to the final forgiveness and atonement in Christ. Mount Zion became synonymous with the dwelling place of God. And in the psalm that we read at our call to worship, you know, it says the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. And then he calls us to worship, to exalt the Lord our God, to worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So Mount Sinai represents the worship according to the works of the law by which no man may be justified, Romans 3.20. And Mount Zion represents the worship that is acceptable to God, that is on the basis of grace through the sacrifices that God approved for the removal of sin. So Mount Zion is called the mountain of the Lord. Psalm 132, 13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. We have not come to Mount Sinai as we gather in worship. We have come to Mount Zion, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is describing this spiritual reality of Christian worship. When we assemble in Christian worship, we are not gathering together as the people of God in Kelowna in a particular building on Stillingfleet Road. Our Christian assembly has brought us to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And we have gathered for an audience in the Jerusalem of heaven. This is what God's word is saying. And it is remarkable. Us, a banished sinful people, enemies of God, banished from his presence, fearful of his holiness, trembling before his glory. We who were once alienated from him have been brought near into his glorious heavenly presence through the intercession of Christ. And in the context of the passage, this is not only referring to our individual experience as Christians, though that is true, but it is more than that referring to our corporate assembly as the people of God. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, in both cases, the, the you referring to the assembly of, of believers. So when the Christian church assembles in corporate worship, we're here, but actually we're in heaven. We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. It is a heavenly meeting of the holy God with his people through the intercessory mediation of Christ on our behalf. And it's remarkable. And, and if it was just there, that, that would be wonderful. But, but the author goes on and, and he look, look at verse 22. It, it goes on into innumerable angels in festal gathering. So our assembly is accompanied by innumerable angels. Festal gathering means that they're having a party. They're celebrating. They're rejoicing. They're worshiping God. And there's others gathered. Verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who are those? The word assembly, it's, it's ecclesia. It's the word for church. And the firstborn, who does that refer to? It refers to Christ. And that's clear because the Holy Spirit uses the same word in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. 
When he says about Christ, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The firstborn is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 1, 15, when he says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So this phrase, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn, it's talking about the church of Christ, the ones who are enrolled in heaven, their names written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, from before the foundation of the world. And, and they are enrolled there. And some of them are actually present there. They have gone on from this life into glory and they are present in heaven all the time. And others like us living in this world while longing for the next only join them periodically as we gather in our corporate worship and are admitted into the heavenly presence of God as we gather and assemble. So what the Holy Spirit is saying that as we assemble ourselves in worship, we're not just a group of 40 or so Christians in a room doing our own thing. We have come into heaven, to the global eternal church of Christ, those from every age and tongue and nation who are gathered together before the presence of the Lord for praise and for glory before the Lord and his Christ. And though we haven't realized it fully yet, what we do here is a corporate participation in the ultimate reality that will be instituted everlastingly in heaven. So if you go home and, and you talk to your neighbor and they ask, oh, how many people were assembled to worship today? Well, you could tell them, we joined with thousands upon thousands of the saints of Christ, plus innumerable angels in festal assembly, and we all worship God together. And if they know what our church looks like, they might ask, well, how did they all fit inside? But this is the mystery. When we gather together and worship as the church of Christ, each Lord's Day, we are brought into the festal gathering of the people of God, angels and saints and the church in the presence of God as, as a foretaste of the full and final worship that we will enjoy and give everlastingly together to God in glory. And that's not all that we have come to. It just keeps on going. Look at verse 23. Again, it says, we have come to God, the judge of all. So in addition to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and the church, we have come near unto God. And this is especially remarkable in its contrast with the assembly at Mount Sinai. What was the command at Mount Sinai? You know, what was the gist of what God was telling the people not to do? You shall not come near. Do not touch the mountain. Do not touch someone who touched the mountain. And they trembled and they drew back. And they begged that God would stop speaking to them. And this is the same condition that man has been in ever since Adam fell. The law inaugurated at Sinai was good. It showed us our need for grace. But it could not in itself justify man. It could not remove his sin. It could not allow us to uh, stand before the holy judge. It is only the sacrificial death of Christ on his cross that tore the veil away so that we, his people, may confidently approach God's throne of grace. 
And so the Holy Spirit is reminding us that when we join in Christian assembly, we are joining with the church and with the angels in the very presence of God, the great and righteous judge through the mediation of Christ by his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead, we can appear before God's holy bench and receive his pardon. Our pardon has been secured by Christ as so beautifully described in the old hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. And verse 23 just keeps going right on. It says that as we gather, we are also coming to the saints of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And who are these? These are the Old Testament saints. Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and the whole group. All present with the Lord. When they were on earth, they worshipped him dimly through types and shadows. But they welcomed God's promise from afar. And they too are among us as we join in our worship. Actually, they were the ones that came here first. If you ever arrive at church late, you know, you, you arrive and we're already one or two verses into the first hymn. That, that's what our worship is actually like. Those saints and the angels and the, the Christians who have gone on to glory, they started this thing and we're joining them in. We are allowed, too, to join their worship that they already began and, and will continue for eternity. And so the next verse of the hymn that I just quoted goes on. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. And finally, verse 24 concludes the list of those who are gathered among our assembly. And it says, we have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The description of worship according to law ended in, in verse 21 with Moses saying, I, I tremble with fear. So that picture ended with Moses trembling in fear. But the New Testament worship, the, the new covenant worship, ends with Jesus' blood speaking a better word than Abel. We have gathered in his presence. He is the mediator of our new covenant. The covenant inaugurated by Moses could not justify, but it pointed to our, our need for a real mediator, Christ's mediation through the shed blood of his cross in the place of his people. And so his blood does speak a better word than Abel, because Abel's blood cries out to God for vengeance, and Jesus' blood cries out to God for mercy. And this is the contrast, this contrast between these two worship events. Uh, I think it's, it's the apex of what God is saying throughout of Hebrews. Jesus is better. His covenant is better because it actualizes what was only pictured before. And his worship is better. And through his grace, we have not come to a fiery, fearsome, trembling, thunderous, dark Mount Sinai but we are brought into the heavenly Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the festal angels, to the church of Christ, to Old Testament saints, to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word. So how do we respond to these things? Look at verse 25. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God has spoken to us in his word. Hebrews 1, again, God speaks to us through his son. Jesus' blood speaks, verse 24. And we're arguing and we're urged now, don't refuse the one who is speaking. Abel spoke to us from earth. Moses spoke to us from Sinai. But God is speaking to us from heaven. He speaks to us through his word and through his spirit. Then it shook the earth. But verse 26 promises, yet months more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Which is a prophecy from Haggai chapter 2, verse 21. And is a warning for us to take heed of the gospel message. If you think that deal on Sinai was scary, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 27 says, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is referring to the, completion, the complete removal of the present created order and the establishment of the eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. So this is a promise and, and it's a warning. It's a warning to those who refuse God speaking. My unsaved friend, please hear the word of God from heaven to you. Do not refuse the one who is speaking. You cannot approach God on the basis of your own works. There is no way for you to run up Mount Sinai to appease God and to be with him on your works. There is no way for you to approach God through that. There is no admission into heaven that way. Only darkness and thundering blackness under his holy wrath. Heed the warning of this passage. Join us, the Church of Christ, at Mount Zion through the grace of Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin and your self-righteous your self-righteous acts and put your faith in Christ. The verse is also a promise that very soon the Lord will shake what has been made and will give us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, where we will worship him in holiness and righteousness forever. The worship that we started here in our weekly assemblies will go on uninterrupted together with God, with the angels, with the Old Testament saints, with Christ, and it will never cease. Then with the yonder joyful throng we at his feet we may fall and we'll join in the everlasting song and we'll crown him Lord of all. So now that God's word has expounded our understanding of what it means to meet corporately in worship, what shall we do? What shall we do? Verse 28 says, 28 and 29, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. First, let us be grateful. Call to mind the glorious reality of gospel worship with the saints. Give thanks to God for bringing you and saving you and bringing you into this assembly. If our weekly worship feels routine, and, and you feel yourself just going through the motions, call to mind these eternal heavenly realities. We have come into the heavenly city of God. 
We have come before celebrating angels to the church, universal, to Old Testament saints, to God and to Jesus. Remember that this is a special meeting between God and his people. Let us be grateful to him and give thanks to him for the grace that we have to worship him in this way, in this glorious way through Christ. And secondly, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We respond to the glories of our heavenly worship by offering God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, remembering that God is a consuming fire. But what is acceptable worship? Clear, clearly from the passage, it is worship by the Spirit, not through the works of the law, but by grace in Christ. It is through the gospel. That's great. But practically, where do we go from there? How do we plan our worship service? How do we understand acceptable worship in terms of what we're going to do on a Sunday and when we're going to do it and for how long? So when I talk about the order of service, what I mean is the content and the sequence of what we do in our public worship on Lord's Day. And the $10 word for that is called liturgy. Liturgy basically means the formula by which our Christian worship is conducted. The sequence in your bulletin, that's a liturgy. We're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and then we're going to be done. And there are all manners of liturgies in, the, in, the, you know, in churches. You know, there's so-called high liturgy churches, high church liturgies, where the sequence is very formulaic, very elaborate, very structured, somewhat constrained, what you're going to say and when you're going to say and the specific words you're going to say and then you're going to do this, you're going to do that and you're going to get up, sit down and all of these different things. And then there's other very minimalistic liturgies. And the difference between these liturgies, between the different churches can, can be significant. And it confuses us and it makes us wonder, well, is there any rhyme or reason to the way that we worship? Or, or can a church's liturgy just be whatever we like or whatever is traditional or whatever draws a crowd? What does God's word say? On one hand, there's no prescribed liturgy. You won't find a bulletin in the Bible that says this is the order of service and this is the way that you'll do it and you won't do it any other way. But on the other hand, in a, in a fuller sense, the, the scriptures do guide us and we can draw from today's text and from other places in the New, in the New Testament and, and elsewhere in the Bible, principles that guide us in how we arrange the liturgy of the church. So let's consider some of these principles, and these principles flow out of today's text and other texts. So first of all, a biblically informed worship, a biblically informed liturgy is God-focused. Our liturgy tells a story. The way that we do things in our worship tells a story. It reveals what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, what we think about the gospel. A biblical liturgy, therefore, first and foremost, recognizes that as we approach God to worship, we worship a holy God. It is the holiness of God that made the Israelites quake in fear at his presence. If we look at Revelation chapter 4, the living creatures and the elders in heaven fell down before the Lord seated on his throne and day and night they said, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In the same way in Isaiah chapter 6, and if you want to, you can move to Isaiah chapter 6. When the Lord commissions Isaiah, he gives Isaiah this vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him there were angels, seraphim, with six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And the seraphim antiphonally, you know, di dialogically, call and repeat, are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the foundation shook and the whole temple filled with smoke. It's starting to sound familiar. This was the worship experience of Isaiah before a holy God in Isaiah chapter 6. And in both cases, the worship of God was focused and called attention to the greatness and holiness and otherness of God. Biblical worship magnifies and exalts and calls attention to the glory and majesty and holiness of God. And this has profound implications for the way in which we worship. We, we begin our service with a call to worship. Somebody comes, today was Warren, he comes, and he speaks to us from God's word, calling us to worship. We do that because we acknowledge we don't come presumptuously into the presence of God. We come because he has welcomed us into his presence through Christ. And he welcomes us again through his word to gather together as Christians, washed clean in the blood of his son, and assemble before him in worship. Then we greet one another in the name of the Lord. And, and I'm particular in the way that I greet. I, I like to say grace and peace to you in Christ Jesus. To remind myself that the greeting I give my brother and sister is not just a regular hello. But as the children of God, we are greeting one another in God's name. God is inviting us not to a party of friends, not to a lecture not to a concert of sacred music, but inviting us into the presence of the King of Kings, the King of the universe, before whom all creation will bow and for whom all heaven now sings. And then we respond to the, to the call of worship with adoration. So you'll notice that our opening hymns, they're chosen to magnify and glorify the name of God, like holy, 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 like we sang today. And this drives the God focus of our worship. And this is because just as false worship begins with an improper recognition of God, true worship begins with a proper acknowledgement of God and his attributes. So we want, if, if someone comes in from off the street, I, I want them to know, if they don't know anything else, I want them to know these people think that God is something different than everybody else. They think that God is holy and that they are not holy. We honor, we bow, we love, we seek, we obey God in response to comprehending his greatness and his goodness. And so recognition of God's true nature at the start of our worship, it begins the flow of the gospel story, not just in the progress of our worship, but in also our hearts. 
So that, that was the first consideration, that a biblical liturgy is God-centered, God-focused. Secondly, a, a biblical worship is shaped by the gospel. We could say the container needs to fit the shape of what it contains. That's why an egg carton is shaped differently than a milk carton. In the same way, our structure of our worship service must be shaped by the gospel that it proclaims and that it contains. And I'll elaborate what I mean by that. A recognition of God's holy character necessarily produces in us an awareness of our sinfulness. So if we think back to Isaiah again, after this glorious vision of, of God's glory in the temple and hearing holy, 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 how did Isaiah respond? Isaiah 6, 4, I said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was similar to the response of the people of Israel at Sinai, right? Immediately brought face to face with his sin. In light of the glory of God, Isaiah confesses his sinfulness and the sinfulness of all that he knows. And so this is how it ought to be. Our adoration of God's character rightly should be followed by a confession of our sinfulness and an acknowledgement that this holy and glorious God who we are gathering to worship is a holy God and I am a sinner. Brian Chappell, in his book called Christ-Centered Worship, explains that human confession is the reflex response of a divine encounter. If there has been no confession in a worship service, then there has been no real apprehension of God. And I suppose I could add to that apprehension of my own wretchedness. His praise necessitates our humility. We cannot truly honor his worth without sensing our unworthiness. We cannot really see who he is and fail to bow. And so we confess our sin. And the way in which we confess our sin can look differently. And, and I would like to add more elements of confession and assurance of pardon into our worship. But then following confession, the heart that cries out to God in need of mercy is not left there. But God mercifully offers his assurance of pardon. And in Isaiah 6, it's, it's the seraphim that flies from the altar and takes a coal from the altar and brings it to Isaiah and touches his lips, his mouth, with that coal and then says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And this is what follows our confession we, we confess our sin and then the gospel comes and it assures us of God's pardon. The heart that cries out to God in confession needs the assurance of his grace. If there's no assurance of grace, then there's no good news in our worship. So practically in our, in our worship service, the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, it takes place at, at different times in different ways. Often as John leads us in prayer, he, he begins with the confession of our sin and our need for grace. That's how I began my prayer this morning. And then he comes and thanks the Lord for his pardon in Christ Jesus. 
And then the hymns that we choose after the pastoral prayer, they're specifically chosen to produce solemn reflection on our own sin, a confession of our sin, acknowledgement of our sin, and the assurance of God's pardon. So consider the hymn that we sang today, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. That's a hymn that, that I chose to help us reflect on the, the confession of our own sin and the assurance of Christ and what he has done for us and his forgiveness on the cross. We sang, my, my burden in thy passion, Lord, thou hast borne for me. For it was my transgression which brought this woe on thee. I cast me down before thee, wrath were my rightful lot. Have mercy, I implore thee, Redeemer, spurn me not. And then the next verse goes on. What language can I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, and so forth. Reflection before the Lord's table is another way in which we engage in confession and pardon. And there are other things that we could do in additional scripture reading or other things to help us reflect the gospel, that God is a holy God and we come to him in worship and yet we are still sinful and we confess our sin to him. And the gospel applies again newly the grace and pardon of his forgiveness. And then in response to his forgiveness, we respond with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and with devotion. In Isaiah 6, again, in response to the forgiveness that Isaiah receives, the, the, um, the expression of devotion that Isaiah gives is, here am I, send me. Right? The, the angels are calling, who are going to go out? Who is going to preach the, preach the message? Who is going to go? And Isaiah says, I, I will go. I will go. And so likewise, when we hear the, the assurance of God's pardon in Christ, we then respond with thanksgiving. And we express our devotion through songs or through prayers or through giving our tithes and offerings. And it's not to pay for what Christ has done, but as an expression of the mercy that we have received in Christ. We are thanking him for his grace. And necessarily we see, we want to see more of his grace in our life and in others. And so we follow up with the pastoral prayer where we bring our needs to the Lord and, and we bring the needs of Christians around the world to the Lord. And so there's this sequence and it's a gospel sequence the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the assurance of Christ, pardon in, in the gospel and our response in thanksgiving and then our petitioning the Lord because we have been clean, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then we desire to hear his voice. We do not say, don't speak anymore, but because we have been washed clean, we want to be instructed from his word. And so we come and we gather under the hearing of the word of God as the sermon is brought to our minds. Again, Brian Chappell says, by his word, God is present to minister to his people, to express his love for them, to guide them through the challenges of life. And the primacy of the word in our liturgy rightly honors the word that represents God and his voice and speaking himself to us. And then what concludes is a benediction a benediction that follows the word, that reminds us of the goodness of God, extolled to us in worship, and charges us to live out the truths that we have heard. So can you see this gospel pattern? I hope you can see it. 
adoration of God's character, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, thanksgiving for grace, petition for God's help, instruction by the word of God, and a blessing. This is the sequence of our liturgical pattern. Maybe you didn't think about it much. And probably there are ways in which we could bring it out even more clearly. But this is not only the sequence of our liturgical pattern, but it describes something even more, that the progression of the gospel. So what we're doing in our worship is we're re-presenting the gospel. The order of our worship is a representation and a re-presentation of the gospel of God and the presence of God and the presence of his people for God's glory and for our good. So we proclaim the gospel in what we say. We symbolize the gospel in the Lord's Supper. And we structure the gospel in the structure of our worship. The gospel story is presented in the very structure of our worship service. And so the service is shaped to fit the contents that it carries. Both the structure and the spoken word support and reinforce one another for a consistent and coherent gospel message. And one other thing, we also see that this gospel-shaped worship is dialogical. What that means is it's not just one-way communication. There's two ways God speaks. The call to worship, he speaks to us. Then we respond in worship. He, it, it ends with the voice of benediction. In between, we praise him. We respond with confessing our sin. He responds with assurance of pardon. We respond with a thanksgiving. He responds by giving us his word. We respond by asking him of our needs in prayer. He responds by blessing us. Back and forth, God speaks and we respond. And thirdly, biblical worship is communal and global and eternal. Our consumer-driven culture has influenced our liturgy in at least two ways. It has often caused us to think that newer is better and caused us to think it should match what I want or what I like. This is a contemporary or individualistic mindset. And it's contrary to the worship described for us in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, look at the biblical pattern here. We join angels in festal gathering. We join the church universal the global, eternal, communal gathering of God's people. And they've had this thing going for thousands of years. They've been there in the presence of the Lord, singing praises to the Lord, glorifying the Lord. They've been in His presence for thousands of years, and we're the ones that are coming late. We're the ones that are, are joining into the worship that they've already started. And so linking our worship to the patterns of the saints in generations past reminds us that we are part of one covenant community bought by the blood of Christ and worshiping together with the saints from all over the world and from all ages. We share the same faith as Christians in the first century or the 13th century or the 21st century. 
What we are doing is rooted in the faithfulness of God to his people throughout the generations. It has stood the test of time and the opposition of the world and everything that the devil can throw at it and it still remains with us because it has value, because it is bringing us into unity with what the God's people have done in time past. So it doesn't mean that new is, is wrong. We sang some new hymns this morning. But there is real value in doing something that people have been doing for 1,000 or 2,000 years. You know, and there are more that we could do. Maybe we could include praying the Lord's Prayer or reciting a creed, a historical creed. And in this way, our liturgy reminds us that we are a part of God's eternal covenant community from around the world and in eternity. And our liturgy also is a means for us to show love to our brother, our brother who comes to church with a heavy heart, or our sister who comes to church with frustration, needing grace, as we share our praise loudly with them and pray with them and confess corporately our sin and encourage them in song collecting offerings for the needs of the people and receiving instruction together in obedience, that demonstrates our concern for our brother. It's a way in which we can minister love to our brother or our sister as we worship together and commune in, ex in, in the context of our worship. Um, I'm taking a long time here, but lastly, biblical worship is Christ-centered. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, the redemptive flow of biblical worship essentially, inevitably, makes our liturgy Christ-centered, Christ-focused. That does not mean that we diminish the honor of any member of the Trinity. God the Father makes our worship Christ-centered by redeeming us through the work of His Son. God the Holy Spirit makes our worship Christ-centered by testifying to him and pointing us to him. Here again, Brian Chapel, who says, heaven's glories would only devastate us if God's grace did not shelter us. We do not merely gather to confess our sin for our shame would destroy us if his grace did not provide a pardon. And we also do not worship only to learn our obligations because God's law would be our death if the lamb had not been slain for our behalf. So Christian worship inevitably makes Christ's work central. And while the Redeemer is the focus of our worship, neither the Father nor the Spirit takes a back seat, but they are presented to us in and through the ministry of Christ. And the Christ-centeredness of our worship is why we observe the Lord's Supper often. We gather around the Lord's table to remember his death and his resurrection, to celebrate the heavenly feast with the people of God, and symbolically to portray the gospel of our salvation. And I believe it is scriptural to do so more often. And gradually, we're moving as a church towards celebrating communion every week, like the New Testament church. And I don't know how long it'll take us to get there, but I pray by God's grace we may get there so that the Lord's table each week reminds us that Christ's death was the cost of our redemption. 
that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that brings us back to the text of today's sermon, Hebrews 8, 12, uh, 29. Our God is a consuming fire, and so we worship him with reverence and awe. And the work of Christ, the mercy of what he has accomplished for us, should fill our hearts with that sense of reverence and awe until we can sing like the German hymn writer who wrote, Glory be to Jesus, who in bitter pains poured for us the lifeblood from his sacred veins. Grace and life eternal in that blood we find. Blessed be his compassion, infinitely kind. Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. Lift we then our voices, swell the mighty flood, louder still and louder, praise the precious blood. So to conclude, it is the gospel that shapes our liturgy. Christian liturgy is patterned by the gospel. And it's not because somebody's rule book dictates it, but it is because by structuring our worship according to the gospel, we express our love to God and we respond in the way that he has expressed his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that we have not come to Mount Sinai, that you are not far off. Lord, though you are holy and we are sinful, but you have brought us through the blood of Christ to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the festal gathering of angels, to God, the judge of all, to the church of Christ, to the Old Testament saints, into your presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, in response to these great things, we give you thanks. Help us to worship you with reverence and awe, knowing that you are a consuming fire that was quenched on our behalf through the holy blood of Jesus. Shape our church worship in and through the gospel to the praise of Christ, to the praise of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.